You are listening to Episode 3 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share, you get a standard contract, steward attendant pay plus quarter share. Do well, and I've always got slots open for good people. The what-have-I-done feeling was just settling around my lungs when Pip stopped at a lock. On the telltale above, it read Lois McKendrick. It will come as no secret to you that you're taking the place of a crewman who failed to perform to our satisfaction, Mr. Wong. Please see to it that we don't have to provide the same courtesy to you in our next port of call. Privately, I wondered if I'd done a wrong thing by signing up but I squashed that thought as soon as I realized I was having it. It was too late for second thoughts at this point, and I hurried after Pip. Chapter 3. Neris Orbital. 2351, September 3rd. Pip took me to the birthing area. It was a fairly large room, light and airy. I'd braced myself for something out of hornblower, with hammocks crammed together in dark squalor, but the birthing area was really quite decent. It had ten pairs of up-and-down bunks arranged in quads, with corresponding upright lockers. Pip informed me that there were two of these birthing areas. Deck, steward, and cargo divisions shared this one, and the engineering division used the other. There was a table and chairs, bolted to the deck, of course, and a sanitary facility with more privacy than I had expected. We don't have a full complement of crew, Pip said, so there are some spare bunks. He helped me pick a bunk, reset the palm lock on my locker, and stow my gear. His bunk was directly across from mine, which was handy since we both worked the mess deck. We drew linens and spare ship suits from stores, and he showed me the tricks of making a bunk that was enclosed on three sides. Looking around, I noted that everyone's bunk was made up and the whole space was neat and tidy. Ship shape and Bristol fashion, I mumbled. What? asked Pip. Nothing. Something my mother used to say. I smiled as I remembered being introduced to C.S. Forrester. After that he took me up to the third mate, Mr. Von Nichols, who was the systems and communications officer, and I got set up with my shipnet credentials and tablets so I could access the ship's network and information stores. Finally he introduced me to my immediate boss, specialist first, chef, Ralph Al Maliki. He was a small, wiry guy with black hair and flashing eyes. Nobody called him anything but Cookie. He hailed from one of the Mabili planets originally, and his galley was redolent with the spices and scents of his home planet, peppery, sweet, and sharp all at once. My duties, at least for those first couple of days, were pretty low-key. Cookie showed me where to find the duty roster and was very patient with me while I learned how to get around in the various storerooms and closets. Mostly I had to make sure there were plenty of sandwich fixings in the cooler and to keep the coffee urns filled with fresh coffee. The first time I saw the big coffee urns, I confess, it was a bit intimidating. Cookie introduced me to them very solemnly. These urns provide the life's blood of the ship, he explained. They were huge, twenty-liter urns, bolted to a counter with their own plumbing built in. There were three of them in a row, along with a tap for boiling water for tea. It was like some kind of shrine, resplendent in copper and stainless steel, prominently mounted near the center of the mess deck. He took a heavy mug from the rack filled it from the valve at the base of the urn, and handed it to me. "'What do you think, young Ishmael?' he asked. I looked into the mug. 
A rainbow sheen floated on the oily sludge in that pristine white china mug. It had a kind of burned, musty smell to it. I had one irreverent notion about burnt offerings before I took a tentative sip. It wasn't as bad as it looked, even black. Not too bad, Cookie, I said, but I think it could be better. Cookie smiled, his shocking white teeth flashing against his olive skin. Excellent, he said, and pointed to the urn at the end of the counter. Use that urn. Do whatever you must. Make me coffee to cry for, he ordered, and went back to the galley. Pip was aghast. What in the name of Auntie and Uncle Matter do you think you're doing, Ish? he exclaimed quietly when Cookie had gone. Making coffee, of course. That's what Cookie wants. Yes, he objected, but you're taking a hell of a risk being critical of the coffee on your first day. I smiled. I may be a greenie on the ship, but coffee I knew, and even making it twenty liters at a time wasn't going to change that. With a kind of odd detachment, I rolled up my sleeves and started in. First thing I did was drag over the step-stool, clamber up on the counter, and look into the indicated urn. Sure enough, the inside was coated with a dark and peeling film. A short investigation showed me that the plumbing included hot and cold water, and worse, that the current water temp was lukewarm coming into the pot. Nodding to myself, I clambered down, dragging the filter cone with me. I took it into the main galley and scrubbed it in the deep sink with a stiff brush and a mixture of hot water and white vinegar until it gleamed. Then I returned to the mess deck with a liter of vinegar and poured that into the urn. Cookie was observing out of the corner of his eye, but he pretended not to watch, so I pretended not to notice and continued with my task. Pip was apoplectic. "'What are you doing with vinegar?' he spluttered. "'Good gods, man! Do you know what that'll taste like if you make coffee out of it?' Yep, I told him calmly. I'm not going to make coffee out of it. I clambered back up on the counter with the scrub brush. I'm going to use it to scour the sludge out of this urn. It took quite a while, and I had to ask Cookie for a wrench to get the level indicator tube off the front of the urn and a bottle brush to clean it, but he showed me where to find them without comment. It took me most of a stand, but I finally got the urn cleaned to my satisfaction, inside and out. After final rinse with scalding water, I shut off the hot water valve and cranked the cold water tap open all the way in preparation for making coffee. Pip showed me where to find the coffee and filters. The filters were good quality paper that fit the filter cone perfectly. The coffee, on the other hand, was dreadful. I popped the lid on the airtight that Pip indicated and found some pathetically stale crud in it. I dumped the crud in the waste disposer, dusting out the airtight with a towel. This is too stale to brew properly. Where are the beans and grinder? I asked him. Pip just looked at me. Beans? Grinder? he asked. We just put two measures of ground coffee in the filter and let her rip, he said. I sighed, went looking for Cookie. He smiled an odd little smile at my request, but showed me where to find the beans, in vacuum-sealed buckets stenciled with Jarkmo Arabasti, and a Schmidt coffee mill that looked big enough to grind a whole bucket at a time. Pip looked on in amazement as I consulted a calculator. "'What are you doing?' he asked. "'This is crazy!' I'm "'Making good coffee,' I told him calmly, concentrating on my measurements and my math. "'This is going to be rough until I figure out the right combination, but it takes anywhere from 7 to 14 grams of coffee per cup, and they're about 7 cups per liter. Based on that cup that Cookie gave me, they like strong coffee here, so I'm going to need about 100 grams of coffee per liter. That urn is 20 liters, but I'm only going to make a half a pot, so I need... About a kilo of ground coffee, I concluded, looking up from my calculations. We'll see how well that works, and then I can adjust the grind or the amount until I get it perfect. I weighed out the beans into an empty airtight, 
checked the grind setting and used a small brush clipped to the hopper to brush out the discharge chute. The grind scale on the controller wasn't terribly helpful, but I put the dial in the middle, hoping for a true medium grind and trusting the Schmid. The tub of beans went in the hopper, and I carefully collected the ground coffee as it spilled from the chute. It looked good. It had a nice texture, and the scent of fresh ground coffee filled the galley. I took the coffee out to the mess deck, dumped it in the filter, punched up the cold water, watching the fill indicator carefully until I'd gotten exactly ten liters of ice-cold water in the urn's reservoir. I used a clean mug to get a bit of cold water and gently wet the top of the ground coffee before I locked down the lid and punched the brew button. Then I went back to clean up the grinder and put away the beans. By the time I had the beans stowed and the grinder brushed out, the coffee was almost done. I watched the color in the level indicator, knowing it would appear less strong than it really was. When the ready light came on, I pulled a fresh mug from the rack and poured it about half full. Looking in, there was a beautiful, rich brown brew without any hint of rainbow or oil on the surface. The color was good, and the scent was pure coffee. I took the cup to Cookie and offered it to him to taste. He looked down into the cup, tilting it to reflect the light off the surface and, no doubt, checking the color. He stuck his nose down into the mug. A small smile began to form. He took a slurping sip and then a deeper swallow, closing his eyes and concentrating. I could feel Pip fidgeting beside me, but I was waiting for Cookie's reaction. Without opening his eyes, he said, So, young Ishmael, is this the best you can do? Pip inhaled sharply in alarm, but I thought I knew Cookie's game by that point. I don't know, Cookie, it might be. There are too many unknowns just now to be sure. His eyes snapped open, and he peered at me hawkishly. Such as? he demanded. Mainly, I need to know the brewing time. If the urn brews too fast, the grind needs to be finer. That's going to depend on the grav settings. I'm assuming we'll keep this general level of gravity all the time, or at least while we're making coffee. Next, I need to know more about the beans themselves. How fresh are they? How are they stored? Last, I need to know how the crew likes their coffee, I ended with a smile. Judging from the sample you gave me, they like it strong, dark, bitter, and oily. I prefer to skip the bitter and oily part, but we must always consider the drinker when brewing fine coffee. My mother's voice echoed in my head as I said this last. I remembered her saying those exact words to me as we explored the mysteries of bean and water together. It was as comforting as it was saddening. Ha! Pip! Cookie crowed. You could learn from this one, and he patted me on the shoulder. You, he told me, waving a finger approvingly in my face, will make an excellent cook. Now drain and clean the other two urns. Make them ready. He filled the mug again before returning to the galley. Pip grabbed China from the rack and drew off a mug of his own. He buried his muzzle into it and sucked down a swallow. His green eyes went wide as he dug in for another drink. "'Where'd you learn to make coffee like that?' he asked when he came up for air. "'Mom always insisted on good coffee. She used to say it cost too much to make badly, so I learned young,' I told him. "'I don't know if the rest will appreciate this,' Pip replied, "'but this might be the best coffee this ship has ever had.' He looked up to where I was working on the next urn with a newfound respect. "'And to think, I knew you when,' he joked. "'While we were working on the remaining urns, Mr. Maxwell came into the mess. "'He was reading something on a tablet and didn't acknowledge our presence. "'I could feel Pip holding his breath while the first mate grabbed a mug from the rack, "'poured, and then sipped. "'He just kept right on moving out of the mess, apparently absorbed in his reading. "'Pip and I looked at each other, both wondering if he'd even noticed, "'when we heard his voice from the passage outside. "'Good work, Mr. Huang. Carry on.' Pip grinned like a madman at me. 
I supposed I smiled as well. "'How do you suppose he knew it was you?' Pip whispered conspiratorially. Cookie strolled in to refill his mug just then and replied, "'Because, Mr. Carstairs, he's had your coffee.' He gave me a broad wink and went back to the galley. I had to chuckle at the look on Pip's face, but I muffled it in the urn. I learned there were three main seatings for meals on the mess deck, 0600, 1200, and 1800 ship standard time. Most of the crew was away from the ship, so meals were mostly for watchstanders and those others who for one reason or another stayed aboard. There were no separate dining facilities for officers, although there was a large table set on the mess deck for their exclusive use. As the time for our departure got closer, more and more people were staying aboard. Broke, most likely, Pip pronounced. Knowing the prices on the orbital and the nature of Nerisport, I judged he might be right. The pace of life on the mess deck picked up accordingly. Cookie took care of the menu planning, but he and Pip and I crawled through all the storage spaces, pantries, coolers, and freezers to check the inventory against the actual stores. Where we were going, it wouldn't be easy to step out and buy a liter of milk if we came up short. "'How much stuff is there?' I asked, as we headed for the fifth walk-in freezer. Pip said, "'We carry stores for up to a hundred and twenty days, but we're seldom underway for more than sixty at a stretch.' When he told me that, I got a funny feeling. Sixty days. That's two months. During the few days I'd been aboard, I'd been too busy learning my new job and finding my way around to think much about being cooped up inside the ship for weeks at a time. What would it be like when I was trapped in the ship for two months?' Pip poked me. Ish, ish, it's okay. I took a deep breath. Sorry, it, it just hit me what I was doing, and he nodded. No worries, you'll be fine. Just, just keep working. I nodded dubiously. I suppose, but the ship seemed so small. He looked at me oddly then. Small? He croaked. Yeah, I nodded. Everything all packed together. The narrow passages. You know, small. He got a speculating look in his eye. You've never seen the ship, have you? Of course I've seen the ship. I'm on the ship, aren't I? He shook his head. No, I mean seen the ship. The whole ship. He bipped Cookie on his tablet and asked, Cookie, request permission to show Mr. Wong the way to the bridge. Cookie's response came right back. Don't get in the way up there, he said. Granted, but return quickly. We need more coffee. The crew will be back aboard in three hours. We closed the freezer, and Pip led me up a couple of levels and down a passage. At the foot of a stairway, they called them ladders on the ship, he paused. Don't touch. Just look. Pay attention to the bridge crew, he instructed softly. He climbed the ladder and said formally, Request permission to enter the bridge? State your business, a rating at the top of the ladder responded just as formally. Orientation for new crewmen, Pip replied. Granted, she said. Pip stepped onto the bridge, and I followed. The room was relatively large. Three large chairs were bolted in key locations, and an array of smaller workstations were laid out around the room. A doorway, a real door, not a hatch, was open in the back of the room and revealed a small conference table. The lighting was subdued, dim even, with most of it coming from the glow of various panels and screens. I could see one screen that displayed what I took to be a nearest planetary schematic with the orbital base and planetary surface plotted on it. A larger-scale display showed the whole system with a blinking blue path curving across it. It took me a few moments to register that there were actually ports facing forward, and the ship was nuzzled up against the outside of the orbital. I'd seen pictures of the station, of course, and watched it on shuttle approach, but this was the first time I'd seen it up close. It looked close enough to touch. 
I could see little scratches and blemishes on the surface finish. I tracked slowly around, realizing that there were ports facing aft as well, and there, stretching out into the star-spackled deep dark, was the rest of the Lois McKendrick. It was not merely huge. Leviathan never seemed so appropriate a term. Gantry lights extended down the spine of the ship, illuminating the container tugs that were moving the big triangular cargo boxes ever so gently into place and locking them down. There were twelve sections of containers reaching out into the dark. Way out at the end of the main spine, a small white light, two hundred meters out, marked the stern post. In one instant I went from feeling like I was crammed in a shoebox to something akin to a flea on a pachyderm. It was staggering. Pip was watching my face. You'll get used to it, he said. But do you still feel like the ship is small? I shook my head, unable to speak. My tablet beeped. Cookie's voice came over the speaker. Your presence is needed in the mess deck, Mr. Huang, he said. Number two urn is out of coffee. Chapter 4. Nearest Orbital. 2351, September 7. The duty watchstander came to wake Pip and me for breakfast duty, ending a long night of near sleep. That day we were leaving nearest orbital and getting underway for Darbot. I rolled out of the bunk, but I didn't really feel rested. Pip slid out of his bunk and slipped past me heading for the sand. I chided myself for being nervous as I straightened the blankets on my berth, securing my loose gear. It's not like I wasn't locked in Dave's before. The only thing different was that today we'd be getting underway, and we'd be heading out there into the deep dark. I was leaning up to straighten my pillow when I heard, Nice package, sailor, but would you mind moving it out of my face? Coming from the approximate position of my knees. The voice, the woman's voice, startled me so badly I fell back into the empty lower bunk under Pip's, banging the back of my head on the upper rail. A woman was in the bunk under mine. A very attractive woman with dark skin, cropped dark hair, and wearing a ship tee over a rather extensive collection of tattoos, blinked blearily up from a nest of blankets. "'You must be the new guy,' she said blandly, if sleepily. I tried to stammer something apologetic, but I wasn't sure what the appropriate comment might be. Uh, "'Call me Ishmael,' I finally got out. She blinked groggily at that. "'You're kidding, right?' I shook my head and was rescued by Pip, wet from the sand and struggling into a fresh ship suit. Beverly stopped scaring the help, he said. Ish, get your ass in the sand. We were due on the mess deck like a quarter to now. The woman held up a slender hand to shake. Beverly Aerith, pleased to meet you. Wake me for the afternoon watch. I shook the offered hand, mumbling Ishmael Huang, before retreating to the sand. Pip gave me grief all morning. You never seen a girl before, Ish, he teased. She startled me, I protested. I didn't realize anybody was there until she spoke. I'd known there were women in the birthing area. Tabitha Rundita slept on the other side of the partition from me. Nice woman, and I didn't mind her little snorty-snorty sounds through the wall. We all shared the sand. It wasn't that odd a thing. Bathing is bathing, and we all like a little privacy when we poop. The shower and toilet stalls all had doors. And I'd lived with my mom, and she was hardly shy, so seeing women in different states of dress and undress was hardly new. All told, it was kind of like summer camp all the time, except we were all adults and not giggly kids, supposedly. Pip smirked at me all morning and nudged me when Beverly came through the serving line at lunch. 
For her part, Bev just smiled, nodded, and moved on. Now hear this. Secure all locks. Stow all gear for departure. Department heads, report to the captain's ready room. There was a countdown timer running on my tablet by now, showing the hours and minutes until we got underway as well. Remembering the size and mass of the ship, I still found it difficult to believe that we'd be moving, let alone sailing out of the system on nothing more substantial than pressure from the sun on an electronically generated field. We had a particularly robust luncheon meal that day, and most people sat around afterwards, hopefully clearing tables, but lingering to chat and catch up with each other. After the sparsely attended mealtimes I'd grown used to while docked, it seemed very crowded and noisy. Even some of the officers stayed for a bit, chatting. After the luncheon clean-up, Cookie took Pip and I aside. Gentlemen, he began, we'll be doing dinner differently today because of departure. The captain has scheduled pull-out at 1600, and we'll still be maneuvering at 1800, so we'll be doing bento box for the evening meal. Mr. Carstairs, you know the drill. Mr. Wong, it's important that we have plenty of coffee in the urns, but make sure they're locked down. We may get a bit of sloshing, and I want to keep things under control. I nodded. Each of the urns had a lockdown lid. They were, for all intents and purposes, spill-proof once the lids were locked. A simple system of curved pipes kept the pressure normalized inside without violating liquid integrity. Two urns or three, Cookie? I asked. He thought about it before replying. Load and prep all three, but only brew two. We can hit the button when we need it. Obvious and logical. I should have thought of it myself and made another hash mark on my personal mental midget list. All the preparation talk was making me a bit nervous, and Pip noticed. It'll be fine-ish. We might possibly get a little bump, but usually it's nothing drastic. We just don't want hot stuff spattered around if we happen to get a rough tug skipper. Once we get pulled back and the sails are up, we'll be smooth again. You'll think we're docked. There was nothing I could do about what was going to happen to the ship. The professionals would be working that end of things, so I obsessed over the minutiae of keeping the urns full. I ground enough coffee for six full urns, throwing the extra coffee into an airtight and dropping it in a chiller to keep it as fresh as possible. The trick was the timing. With everybody on board again, consumption was amazing, although the handbook told me everybody would be at their duty stations about a half a stand before the actual departure, so we needed to have the most coffee about a stand before. Accordingly, I timed the urns to be full at 1500 for the 1600 departure. I needn't have worried so much about it, but it did serve to keep me distracted. They drank a lot of coffee. Bento box turned out to be the shipboard equivalent of takeout. Finger foods and things that wouldn't go squish if you dropped them. Cookie drew on his ancestral heritage and made up some kind of spicy fillings and a couple of variations, and we spread flat rounds of bread with them, rolling them to seal them up before binding it all together in cling film. Pip and Cookie and I set up a production line and started spreading and rolling. Forty-five crew needed a hundred and twenty of these little buggers, but it took less than a stand once we had the setup going. I was frankly astonished. We'd done them at a rate of better than three a tick. I guess it wasn't that surprising, considering that Cookie did two for every one that Pip and I completed. Spread, roll, wrap, stack. Mindless, but oddly social gathered there around the prep table in the galley. I expected we put them into paper bags for easy carrying, but, again, Cookie had other ideas. He pulled out a stack of stamped cardboard and quickly folded one into a box with a clever folding lid. He showed me how to do it, and I picked up a flat piece of cardboard, flexed my fingers a couple of times, and put down a box. It was like I'd been born folding them. Even Cookie seemed startled by how rapidly I folded them. Honestly, I, I have no idea how I did it, but Cookie left the folding to me while 
he and Pip started filling them up. Two rolls, one piece of fruit, a cookie, a package of sliced vegetables, and some small cups of dressing for dipping. The dressing was the only thing that might have spilled, but each box only got a few milliliters. With the lids closed, the boxes stacked flat on each other, and I noticed they had small indents that kept them from sliding apart once stacked. Clever, and then some. "'What about drinks, Cookie?' I asked. "'They can't come down for coffee, can they?' Cookie pointed out large insulated containers under one of the counters. "'You'll be delivering. Fill one with black coffee. Fill one with light coffee. Take a pocket full of sweetener packets,' he said. As the clock ticked down to pull out, the mess-deck crowd began to thin. I was able to set up and secure the coffee urns with two fresh and full, and one on standby. The boxes were stacked on trays and secured in the coolers against sudden shifts in gravity. Cookie had this down to a science, and while Pip certainly had been through it before, we both marveled at Cookie's expertise. "'We run a restaurant, gentlemen,' he reminded us regularly. "'The customers don't have much choice, but we owe them the best, just the same.' Finally the preparations were complete. Cookie declared us ready, and Pip and I collapsed into chairs at one of the mess-deck tables to wait. About then the speakers announced, "'Pull back in thirty ticks. All crew to duty stations. Set navigation detail. Secure for pullback. Set readiness level yellow throughout the ship.' For Pip, Cookie, and I, the mess-deck and galley were our duty stations, so we just looked at each other. "'Do we strap in or anything?' I asked. Cookie smiled, but Pip guffawed. Cookie smacked him playfully. It's a fair question, Jack and Apes. You've been around too long to remember your first pullback? Pip had the decency to look abashed. Actually, no. My first time was on the Marcel Duchamp. I was a wiper in environmental there, and they had me strap in the scrubber in case of emergency. He looked both angry and embarrassed. Bastards left me in there for three stands. Cookie winked at me. Pip just groaned. It took me all trip to get the stench out of my hair. I never did live it down. That's why I took the transfer over here. This is the first time Pip had offered any information about himself in the time I'd known him. Thinking back, I realized it had been less than a week, although it seemed like a lifetime. I was already having trouble remembering what it had been like before the ship. When was this, I asked him. Last year, he said. I'm into my second year as quarter share. Don't laugh. Why would I laugh, I asked. Isn't that good? Cookie chimed in. Yes, it's very good, Ishmael, considering the alternative would have meant he'd become stranded on some company planet in the back end of nowhere. I thought of whomever it was that had been left on Nerys, the hapless attendant whose birth I'd taken. Was Nerys the back end of nowhere, I wondered? Well, I should have moved up to half-share birth by now, Pip defended himself a bit petulantly. And so you shall, soothed Cookie, but all in good time. All hands, brace for pull-out! All hands, brace for pull-out! squawked the ship's speakers. Unconsciously I held my breath, and my knuckles turned white on the edge of the table as I braced. Cookie smiled, and Pip just picked up his coffee cup from the table. Somewhere in the distance I felt, rather than heard, a thump from the front of the ship, and my inner ear told me something had happened, like when the lift starts moving. The speakers squawked again. All hands, pull-out complete! Tugs cast off in three-zero ticks! Mark. That's it? I exclaimed. We're underway, Mr. Wong, Cookie said with a smile. Rather uninspiring, isn't it? That was it. We were underway. Somehow it didn't seem enough, but it cast a new light on Pip's story. Quarter share for over a year. Transferred to get away from the embarrassment. Pip and I were due for a heart-to-heart, -heart because there was more happening there than met the eye. 
The speculation must have shown on my face, because he suddenly became vitally interested in the level of the coffee in his mug. Cookie distracted me with stories of pullbacks where the tug captain hadn't quite so deft a touch. He showed me a scar where he'd been thrown against a steam pipe by a rough pullback years before. Usually, though, he said, they're like this. Over the next three stands, the speakers gave status reports as the tugs released us and we slowly came about onto our course out of the system. We had a lot of mass to get moving. The kicker engines all the way aft pushed us only for the first few clicks, and after that they were secured till we reached the jump point. After we'd gotten clear of the orbital, we'd run up the field generators and the huge sails and gravity keel deployed, picking up the solar winds and pulling us out of the gravity well that was near us. The outbound leg was scheduled to last twenty-two days before we hit the gravity threshold and jumped into the Darbot system. At eighteen hundred hours, the normal dinner hour, the captain called down to Cookie and gave him the go-ahead to distribute dinner. A few crew who had no navigational duties came to the mess deck and sat together over their bento boxes, talking quietly among themselves, while Cookie, Pip, and I attended to feeding the other thirty-odd people scattered around the ship. By 1830 we'd completed our rounds and returned to the galley to clean up. At twenty-hundred hours the speakers came on one last time and announced, Secure from navigation detail, set the watch for normal operations, set condition green throughout the ship. Second section has the con. I punched the button to start the last urn brewing, and let the oldest coffee drain away. By the time the captain and bridge crew showed up at the mess deck, they had fresh coffee and Cookie had laid out a tray of pastries. Shipboard routine wasn't terribly difficult to adjust to, although it tended to be tedious. We served breakfast at 0600 and lunch at 12, dinner at 1800 ship's time. Midnight watchstanders could get sandwiches and snacks from the galley cooler. Pip and I got up at 0430 to help Cookie with breakfast. The menu was always different, and I grew fascinated with the way Cookie took the same basic ingredients and made something fresh every day. We always made biscuits for breakfast, and Cookie would set up the yeast breads to rise for baking later in the day. He frequently made batches of tortillas and pitas and other unleavened breads for lunch. We almost always had yeast rolls or crusty loaves for dinner. He baked long, square loaves of bread for sandwiches every day. Cookie was the unquestioned maestro of the galley. While Pip may have seen him as merely a taskmaster, I soon began to admire him as an artist. Mornings were the longest part of the day, because we started early, and breakfast clean-up often took until mid-morning when we began lunch. We'd get a couple of stands off after lunch before we had to help set up for dinner. Pip and I alternated dinner clean-up, so we each got a short day every other day. I found myself actually looking forward to that quiet time in the galley. My skill with the coffee turned me into a kind of celebrity with the attendant good and bad attention. Most people just welcome me aboard. A mess attendant is not terribly high on anybody's radar, even ones who make good coffee. Beverly turned out to be a good bunkie, after the initial embarrassment, which was all mine. She had a wicked sense of humor, which I appreciated more when it wasn't directed at me. Thanks for listening to Episode 3 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music from the Lucky Black Cat, recorded by James Curran, Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation of Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, 
See www.durandis.com golden. Thank you.